Hi, I'm Terrell Turner, the host of the Law and Finance Show. And today we have another great guest on because one of the things that you learn about, you know, growing a law firm is really paying attention to people who have more experience than you do or people who have experience in areas that you don't. Now, the guest that we have on for today, I mean, he's probably been in trial court more than most people. I'd probably say more than 90% of the people in the country. And when you're doing a lot of trial work, there's a lot of effort that goes into that. So the question becomes, how do you do that and still build and manage and grow a profitable law firm? So stay tuned for today's guest. Without further ado, let me bring on my guest, John Tolley. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Well, it is a pleasure to have you. Um, one thing I will say is when I looked at your website and just, you know, you're you're showing up on the news, you're all over the place. So, like, what area, what part of the country are you in and what parts of the country do you practice in? <laughs> So I started off in Florida, but the firm has grown to four different states so far, and we're looking to expand to our fifth state, hopefully by the end of this year, if not mid next year, depending on my licensure. So we, we practice in New York, New Jersey, Florida, Pennsylvania, and then Texas. Hopefully I'm getting licensed in the next six months or so there. So we're hopefully going to be in five states after you know three, almost, well, 2019, we started the firm. So after that amount of time. Awesome. Awesome. So I definitely want to dive into that a little bit more in the conversation. But before we jump too far into that, for those that may not have met you before, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah. So like you said, my name is John Tolley. I'm an attorney first and foremost. Um, I started practicing uh, as a prosecutor in Broward County, Florida, where I was trying violent felonies. I was essentially going after gangs, trying to keep guns off the street and, and victims safe. Um, after doing that for three years and trying, you know, 40 jury trials all the way to verdict, I, I left and I went to a civil defense firm. And, and that's where I started learning about civil law, primarily first party property, which is like home or commercial properties that are damaged and you have an insurance policy and you're trying to get the insurance company to pay for the damages that were caused by the loss. I, I didn't really like being on the defense side. It didn't feel like I was helping people out. So in 2019, I started JT Law Firm. And I switched over to what we call the plaintiff side, where I represent homeowners as well as property owners, you know, people who own commercial buildings when they have some type of issue like a hurricane or a pipe leak or a roof leak, stuff like that. And, and we've been doing you know, that ever since. And it's really enjoyable. Awesome. And, you know, I got to ask, you know, with that many you know, cases taken to trial and to verdict, I mean, is the I guess the experience of waiting for a verdict, is it as highly charged adrenaline wise as tv tends to portray it <laughs> so so really it's really weird so the jury goes out and you're kind of like oh you know i've tried 47 jury trials you're like oh thank god it's over you know it's been two three weeks even if the trial's only a couple days you're preparing for that trial for weeks in advance you're prepping witnesses you're not sleeping you know when you get out of the courtroom because you're you're calling witnesses to tell them when to be, where to be. So when the jury finally goes out, you kind of relax, you take a breath, it's over. And, you know, depending on how the case went, if, if you feel like the case went well, you're, you're thinking, hey, this should be a 10 minute verdict. The jury should come back for me. Or 
If the case didn't go by, hey, this should be a 10 minute verdict. It should go back for them. Um, so you kind of go through this phase of like, all right. And then after the 10 minutes passes by, because rarely you get a 10 minute verdict, then you're kind of like, all right, are we going to get out of here anytime soon? Are they going to make a decision? Then after a couple hours, you're like, they're never going to make a decision. We're going to have to retry the case. And then ultimately, the really the, the craziest part is when the clerk gets the verdict, the clerk has to read every single thing on, on the verdict form. So it usually starts with, you know, in and for Broward County, 17 Judicial Circuit. So she goes all the way through that. And then it gets to a line that talks about we, the jury, find as the question number one. She reads the question. And right before she tells you if you won or lost, essentially, I swear it takes like three hours for, for her to read that off or him to read that off. But once that is read off and the clerk reads it off, and if you win, it's the best feeling ever. If you lose, you know, it's not a great feeling. You go eat your feelings either way, you know. So, so that's kind of what it's like. But that part right there where the clerk, whether he or she reads it, you know, as fast as they can or what feels like as slow as it can, it still feels like 10 hours and it is the best feeling, you know. Awesome. Now, I guess what's been like the longest time a jury has deliberated? So I was doing a lot of violent felonies um, and usually with these violent felonies, you know, it's not like TV where you had DNA and all this other stuff. You know, usually it's a friend or, or a colleague or somebody that knows you that's more likely to commit these crimes scary enough. So those verdicts would take a while because also the jury kind of realizes that they're probably sentencing this person to an extremely long time in prison. So I've had two or three day verdicts where they've come back and they've reconsidered. I've also had um, seven minute verdicts where they've come back and they they found, you know, in my favor in seven minutes. So it really, you have no idea. It, you kind of get worried when you put the jury out at like 4 p.m. on a Friday because you feel like by 5 p.m. they're going to be like, you know what, we just want to get out of here. And, and they make a decision maybe ignoring the facts. But, you know, you never know. You just never know when it's going to happen. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I'm curious, how, you know, at with so much experience in that, you know, what was it like kind of making that decision to leave that practice of law? I mean, since you had so much experience, was it an emotional change or was it a logical change for you? Like, how did you get to that point? So it was really crazy because um, growing up, I had some friends and they had gotten treated poorly by police officers. And I had always wanted to be a lawyer. So my idea and, and not, you know, not to get political about that, but they just were not being treated right. And I didn't like it. And so when I was in law school and when I was going to college, I actually joined the mock trial team. And so my thought process was I always wanted to be in a criminal defense realm. Right. And I, the idea at first was, hey, I need to be a criminal defense attorney to protect people. And then what I started realizing is, no, prosecutors have the discretion. You know, essentially, I do criminal defense a little bit now. And basically, I'm just begging the prosecutor, right? You know, the prosecutor decides what charges are brought, how to prosecute the case, what offer to make, you know, whether or not to drop charges. So I ultimately um, did a bunch of internships at the prosecutor's office while I was in law school. I actually tried jury trials as a, as a law student. Um, and so when I, when I left, obviously, that's all I wanted to do. So I graduated from law school. And then, you know, for those three years, they were magical. They were wonderful. But I also wanted to have a family you know, make a little bit of money. So it was bittersweet. It was definitely one of those situations where it had kind of run its course and it was time to move on in my career. But at the same time, that's what I had done for the three years of law school and obviously for the three years working for the office. So it obviously was really tough, but, you know, to, to say it wasn't financially motivated, probably, you know, probably wouldn't be hundred percent truthful, but also, you know, at times you want to, you want to kind of challenge yourself and, and do something else. And I had been doing criminal law essentially for six years by that time, you know. 
Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, so as you started to make that transition between the, you know, from, you know, being a litigator and now looking at other forms of practicing, you know, and eventually making it into starting your own, your own firm. I mean, now, was there, was that kind of a smooth transition for you or what kind of really pushed you over the top of saying like, hey, you know what, I'm going to step out there and take that leap of faith and start building my own firm? So it's, it kind of goes back to my mom. We have a really, really close family, me and, and then her, her dad was like my best friend growing up. He was, he was an amazing person. He was, uh, you know, he was not from America originally. He kind of had all these hustles when he was growing up as the Woody did. Um, you know, to make money. My mom is a first generation American and she had started being an entrepreneur. So it's, I kind of had a weird dichotomy because my dad's family was very much like, you know, we don't start our own businesses. We work our, you know, W2 jobs. And my mom's family was kind of this family that was like, Hey, you know, try it, go ahead, start a business, see if it works. So my mom was an entrepreneur, a business owner. And so even before I had gone to law school, I, I knew that at some point, I wanted to try it, right? I wanted to open up my own shop. I wanted to work for myself. I wanted to take that, you know, risk. And so I knew it was not, it wasn't really an option. It was going to happen regardless. So really what I wanted to do when I left the prosecutor's office was get experience in another field of law. So that way, you know, as a business side of it, if, if criminal law doesn't do so well one year, but this civil law does well, then we can kind of balance out if we have a rough year in one of the practice areas. But I knew that I didn't want to just jump cold into doing something. I wanted to go learn how to do it first. So that's kind of why I transitioned to a, a, a civil defense firm and then ultimately, obviously, opening up the firm itself. Nice, nice. So now one of the things I'm also curious about is, you know, how much of your, like you say, legal experience um, do you think prepared you for the business side of running your own firm? Law school has nothing to do with practice of law at all. There is nothing about law school where you're going to leave law school and be like, I can practice law. And then it really has nothing to do with the business side of law at all. Um, you know, I guess I was lucky because I was growing up. I used to, you know, if I was sick, my mom was a single mom. She, she couldn't, you know, take off work because she owned the business. So I would be at the office sick, listening to her take business calls, negotiate deals, you know, handle payroll, all of these things. So I guess I kind of had an idea of it. You know, I would watch her late work until late in the evenings, you know, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. But yeah, when I when I started my own firm, it definitely was a huge transition. It was definitely a learning experience. And, and really, I was lucky enough to rely not only on my mom, who's owned her own business, but my wife's mom has, you know, she's run three, four, five different businesses. And so they've been gracious enough that when I call them asking for questions, they've always, you know, they either have an answer or they can refer me to somebody who has an answer. So it's really kind of important to rely on that network or that, you know, that that uh, group of people that you have that maybe have gone through the experience before you. But, yeah, nothing prepares you for <laughs> for, for running your own business. I mean, it would definitely growing pains then growing pains now. I'm sure growing pains, hopefully 20, 30 years down from you know, the future for now. Awesome. Gotcha. Now, one of the things that I, I do find to be interesting is just uh understand like how law firms really came about when you when you look at how did you start attracting like your ideal clients because there are people that use a you know a gamut of different approaches so it's like what did you try to do that didn't work well or what did you do that you were like hey you know what this seems to work a lot better for us so it's really funny right now i'm, I'm 33 so i'm not too old but 
TikTok has been really awesome for us. It's been one of the marketing tools that really has worked. Um, and I think it's because you're reaching people, you know, our age or a little bit younger. And then, you know, even my mom's on TikTok. So it's not like it's just for 15 year olds doing dances. Right. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, marketing was crazy. I mean, when I first started the business, I didn't have really any clients. Right. It was really scary. And so I ended up finding this uh, this firm that they, they called themselves the freelance law firm. And what you would do is you do hourly rates for them and they would have you do depositions for other firms and stuff like that. So I did that to basically make ends meet while trying to, you know, develop a marketing budget and all of this stuff. But I mean, one of the things that we did that just did not work was we, we did the bus ads where we put ourselves in the back of the buses. And then like here in Brooklyn, they've got a bunch of bodegas and they all have TVs in these bodegas. And, you know, so we did this thing where you could see our ad on the TV. It would be one of like the 30 ones that appear during the hour. And, you know, we spent a whole bunch of money that we didn't have on it. And, you know, we cried writing the checks. We were hoping we were going to get ROI and we did not get ROI at all. And um, now we're doing the TikTok thing and, and the overhead is not as high as those things. You know, whenever you say a lawyer and you call a TV station or a radio station, the prices just jack up for, for advertising. So, you know, definitely those those didn't work for us. Maybe they work for other people, but we've kind of found our niche lately. And then I think the other thing with it is just results, right? You know, we try cases, we want a bunch of cases. Um, you know, we have a good reputation in the, with our opposing counsels. And as a result, you know, I've gotten opposing counsels call me and say, hey, my family friend has an issue. Can you represent them? You know, so that that helps a lot. I mean, just, you know, word of mouth and, and you know, obviously using your social media presence to publish not only, you know, cool videos like we do on TikTok, telling people about different types of law, but also what our results are. Hey, you know, I got these charges dismissed. You know, I, I won this much for a homeowner that originally was given zero dollars. So your results kind of are your best marketer is what we're starting to learn. Gotcha. No. So how did you fight the urge to not fall into the typical TikTok style of video? Because probably when you started it, I mean, it probably wasn't that many professionals on TikTok that you can probably say, oh, okay, this person is doing it this way. A lot of people are either singing or dancing. So how did you fight the urge or did you try that for a little while? <laughs> We've done everything. So we actually have a really great marketing team that helps us with the TikTok. Um, I said the TikTok, I sound super old, but um, they, they help us. So I do, a, I, I do one and then my wife is my law partner. She also has one because she does immigration law. And um, so we've tried everything. We've done the, I They made me dance a couple times. Um, you know, we've done 60 second videos. We've done 15 second videos, seven second videos. Um, so it's really weird because TikTok kind of changes their algorithm. So we have different strategies depending on the algorithm. So right now it's very short videos. But um, yeah, no, I, we tried everything with TikTok and they're professionals. You know, my one thing that, you know, I kind of always tell when people ask me about business is, you know, if I, if I need to handle a first party property issue or a criminal defense case, I'm going to go to myself. Right. But if I want to learn how to do social media, I'm not going to go to myself. I'm going to go to a professional who does social media. So they're able to handle that and really kind of direct us on what they think is going to work. And obviously things sometimes work and things sometimes don't work. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. So one of the things that I, I'm also curious about is, you know, you took that leap of you know, starting your own firm. And, you know, that is scary, comes with its own challenges within itself. But then to start practicing in so many different states, what brought that about? Well, I'm going to blame my wife like every husband does for this one. So <laughs> I'm originally from Florida, but my wife is from Brooklyn. I met her in Florida when she was in law school. 
So she wanted to go back up to Brooklyn and, you know, we were kind of making a life decision of, and we just actually had our, our baby on July 30th, but we were making decisions as to what we wanted to see, you know, when we were growing our family. And so we made the decision to move to New York and obviously moving to New York means I had to take the New York bar, which I swore I would never take another bar again. So it is proof that I love her more than anything in the world. Um, so I ended up taking the New York bar a couple of years ago, passed, uh, started practicing in New York and, so Florida was kind of revving up a little bit. New York, then obviously I started to build. And then when you get into New York, you can just kind of wave into a couple other states. So I waved into Jersey because it's right across, you know, and then Pennsylvania as well, I waved into. As we started to grow our reputation in the Northeast, obviously we had people in Jersey asking us to represent them as well as Pennsylvania. So we kind of started getting licensed where the demand was, right? You know, where people were asking us, hey, can you help us with these cases? And once it became financially feasible for us to justify, yeah, we'll go ahead and wave into Jersey because we're going to have enough clientele there. That's what we started doing. Gotcha. Now, how has it been, you know, trying to, I guess, expand your marketing reach in so many different geographical areas at the same time? It's crazy. <laughs> it's absolutely crazy. So it's also uh, difficult for us as lawyers know is we're regulated by the bar in terms of what we can do in advertising. So for New York, it's pretty much wide open. You can pretty much do whatever you want to advertise. But like, for instance, in Florida, if I was going to put something in like a, a newspaper or, an, or a magazine or I was going to run a commercial, everything has to be approved by the Florida bar. So I have to go and send that to the Florida bar and the Florida bar has to approve of what's in it. And then once they do, I can publish that that advertisement. So it's not only crazy from a standpoint of just like, hey, you know, our SEO has to attract these areas of Jersey and New York and Florida and Pennsylvania but also, okay, what does the bar say about advertising in this state as opposed to that state? So yeah, it's been wild, but we've got a really good team. And then my wife's a superstar legal researcher. So she makes sure we're compliant with all the bar rules. And then, you know, I just get on the TikTok and act like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the things I, I'm curious, because, you know, this is something that for years, we kind of worked through in the accounting industry, whereas, you know, I would say state CPA society. So if you were a CPA, there were restrictions around, you know, what you can advertise or like how you can actually put yourself out there, which I guess makes it a little interesting because if you're not a CPA, then there really weren't any rules restricting you. It was just the rules on the CPAs. But, you know, one of the, the questions that would come up for a while is, well, does creating content fall under like advertising or, you know, are we actually free to, you know, create the type of content we want? Did you did you guys run into any of that as you were looking at, you know, kind of creating content and knowing that you're reaching these different geographical areas? So my understanding is the type of content that we produce really isn't as regulated as, you know, if I were to do a commercial, a TV commercial and stuff like that. So, but yeah, same thing. I mean, you know, we have we have the same type of restrictions that you're kind of describing there. So luckily, I think that social media hasn't been, you know, too restricted in terms of advertising because, you know, it's obviously the biggest rule as lawyers is we can't directly solicit. We can't know somebody has a problem and go get them. Right. But if we put it out there and they find us, then obviously, you know, um, that helps. So, um, you know, that's that's the issue that we usually have to kind of guide ourselves with. But, yeah. Luckily, I don't think social media has been as restricted as, as you know, if I was going to go publish traditional advertising. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, you mentioned earlier about, you know, some of the stuff that you guys are creating content on is just really helping people understand, like, hey, here's here's what we've been doing for the clients. And hey, here's what some of the results have been. Can you share with us what 
you know, some of those results are or what some of the, the types of cases and the types of clients that you've helped? Yeah, absolutely. So our, you know, our clientele is homeowners or commercial property owners, right? Somebody who owns a building um, or owns a home and something happens to that home that would be covered under their policy, right? Like a storm damages the roof. Uh, they have a pipe burst. There's a fire, um, you know, a flood. Depending on those type of things, if they make a claim or we make a claim on their behalf to the insurance company and the insurance company doesn't pay them enough to put them in what we call a pre-loss condition or they deny them flat out, we can help those people get what they paid for essentially under the policy. So that's that's really who we focus on. And, and so what's interesting about that type of law is most of the time when we settle those cases, the insurance company requires us to sign confidentiality agreements that we can't publish you know, the amounts or, you know, all of those type of things. But, um, you know, we do we do several claims where the insurance company originally said, hey, nothing. You don't get a dollar. Right. This is not a covered loss. And we get six figures, you know, on these claims. Um, you know, obviously, look, at the end of the day, our job is to put our clients in the pre-loss condition. So we're not trying to pillage or, you know, take a bunch of extra money in terms of, uh, you know, because I know that kind of stigmas out there with the insurance industry. But we're there to get the client what they paid for, right? Our homes are our biggest assets. If anything happens to our homes, we want to make sure we're covered because we pay those premiums every single year. And so that's what we get for our clients. And, you know, we our, our motto is, we, you know, you don't have to settle, right? Where you don't have to settle is JT Law Firm. And that's how we kind of treat these cases is, look, we're not going to settle a case that we think deserves full payment, you know, and, and that's how we operate. So that's our that's our um, clientele. I also still do a little bit of criminal defense because I was a prosecutor. And then the other partner, Monica Blasney, who's my wife, does some immigration. And then our other partner does uh, just strictly this first party stuff in Florida. Awesome. Awesome. So if people are interested in learning more about, you know, the, the firm or any of the content work, where, where should they look online to find you? So I'd say number one is our TikTok. I have a TikTok handle called Let's Litigate. And uh, so that's where you'll find me. And I talk mostly about first party property damage there. As you can see, I'm holding a dog in one of the videos and there's wires <laughs> in the other. It's, it's, it's wild and it's fun. And, uh, you know, I, I really enjoy TikTok, whether they're stealing my information or not. <laughs> Um, and then the other place you can find us is our website, which is jtlegaloffices.com. And that's where you can get in touch with us. You can, you know, send us a message to set up a consultation. You can see all the different news articles we've been published in and the results that we've obtained for clients, as well as you can see the profiles right there of all three of our partners. Um, you know, so it's, uh, it's really the best way to get in touch with us is one of those two about these issues. Awesome. Well, before we wrap up, one question I love asking every guest is, you know, when you think about, you know, all the things that we've talked about, some of the wisdom, the things that you shared, if you were telling someone like, hey, you got to listen to this conversation that I had on the law and finance show, what would be two things that you would tell them to make sure they pay attention to? Well, the first thing is it's expensive being cheap. That is something I have learned the hard way from business, right? So, I mean, look, we're always trying to balance our budgets, right? Make sure that we, we you know, stay as far out of the red as we can as possible. But at the end of the day, nine times out of 10, that cheaper way is going to cost you to have to go back, redo it and spend money on the more expensive way. You're basically going to double your costs. Right. So I, I there's a saying in our office when we're considering something and we're looking at it. And one of the arguments is, well, this is cheaper. Right. Well, we go, OK, but is it cheaper and is it going to be more expensive at a later time? So it is expensive. Being cheap is something I drive the partners nuts with when we when we get onto our, our shareholder meetings together. 
And then the other, the other uh, piece of advice that I would have, and, and my mom is going to be so happy on bringing this up, but she used to play this song and it was a horrible song. And the song talks about just dance. You know, when you get the opportunity, just dance, you know, if one door closes, hopefully the other one opens. Right. And basically the essence of that song was do it, just, just go for it. Right. And you know, there's times where I'm tired. I've been in trial. I don't feel like going to that networking event. I don't feel like jumping on a podcast, you know, and you just got to walk through that door. You got to take that call. Maybe that you don't know if that person's going to be a lead or not. And really it's helped us grow our business because I've kind of always had that mindset of, you know what, let's just dance. Let's just go ahead and see if this works out. And if it works out, that's great. And I'm naturally a person who is hesitant as I think all lawyers are right. We hear an opportunity and immediately, immediately as a lawyer, we criticize that opportunity. We look for reasons not to do it. And I try to rewire myself to think of reasons why I should do it, right? Hey, this seems to be an opportunity. And obviously then use your your you know, your know wisdom and use your judgment to decide if ultimately that's going to be something you want to continue to pursue, but at least open the door and try to walk in and see what, what there is to do. Awesome. I love it. Well, John, thank you so much for being an amazing guest on today's show, man. Thank you for having me. This was a blast. And, and, you know, obviously, thanks for giving me a voice. But what you do is amazing. And, and, and this is an awesome presentation and a great resource for people to learn. Not like you said in the beginning, from people who have done this before, whether you have more experience or not, you can always learn something from somebody. So this is an awesome resource to use. If you're looking for ideas on how to manage and grow a profitable law firm, this Facebook group is perfect for you because every week we are featuring conversations with successful lawyers and businesses related to law firms on tips, ideas, and technology that are helping many people grow and manage a profitable law firm. So if you're looking for great tips and ideas, you definitely want to click the link below so you can join the conversation and be part of the Law Firms and Finance Facebook group.